ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, Clint Jasper here, taking you to the places and introducing you to the people that make up a big country. This week, catching rare and tiny marsupials in the desert to relocate them to a new island home. We'll learn about a program to reintroduce Mulgaras to Dirk Hartog Island off the West Australian coast. We'll hear from some teenagers with the gift of the gab. They're having a go at the fast-talking job of livestock auctioneering. And we'll meet a wildlife carer who's nursing sick animals back to health. She's working with some cute and special penguins. Being able to do these guys is super special. They are my fun place. I don't know, there's something about penguins. There's just something wonderful about penguins. And these guys are, they're inquisitive, they're interesting. They do things that you know is a signal, like right flipper out pretty much means bugger off. <gasps> out of my space, please. Thank you very much, but you can now leave. Their expressions, their, everything about them I find absolutely fascinating. We'll hear how those penguins, native to New Zealand, are faring after washing ashore, exhausted and hungry, a long way from home that is coming up. First today, nearly four years after the devastating black summer bushfires, a group of young people from the New South Wales snowy valleys have put the trauma they experienced firsthand onto canvas. And it's resulted in some pretty remarkable pieces of art. Sam Robinson has the story. When Tumut teenager Alicia Olsen was just 13 years old, she was evacuated from her home as the black summer bushfires drew near. My dad and my sister, they stayed back to protect the house. There was one point where the phone lines were down and so there was like almost zero contact between like the rest of our family and my dad and my sister And it was just that anxiety from it and the not knowing of what's going on, not knowing what we're going to be coming home to. Now age 17, Alicia was one of seven teenagers to take part in a six-month program to turn the trauma from that summer into artwork. The project was led by Dr Rachel Fox from Charles Sturt University's School of Psychology. You know, rural Australian young people are very affected by bushfire and other disasters. And um, we wanted to give them space for their voice. And one way that we thought would be interesting and valuable to do would be creatively. And in a group setting, um, lots of young people won't share really personal things to them. So the arts is a way to communicate instead of speaking. Alicia Olsen created a piece called Earth, a painting of a woman that represents Alicia's concerns about natural disasters and climate change. And so in the painting, she has a very feminine figure and she's almost cradling herself. It's like a very dark brown figure from, you know, all the fires. And it just shows the real vulnerability of the earth at the moment compared to what we're doing to it and there's no way for it to protect itself and so we need to be the one to protect it. You know you have the bushfires and you'd think that the bushfires would have sort of been like a wake-up call. Even now you know you've got the fires in Hawaii yep and then there was the fires in Greece as well and you know like you look around and it's like why are people not seeing this and seeing it as a sign that something needs to happen. Tilly Connolly is 16 years old and remembers the fires clearly. It was quite scary because my grandparents have a property up in Batlow 
And I remember them ringing and telling mum what was going on and I was really upset and I was telling them at like 12 o'clock to come down to Tumut, get out of there. You know, I was upset crying. I was at the front and they ended up coming down here and staying with us for a bit. And I just remember it just was really scary. Tilly's artwork is called Pines Bend Over and shows a phenomenon seen on many hillsides after the fires. It represents the pine trees burning because when the sap burns, the trees bend and the sap hardens so the trees can't bend back up. It's a little piece, but it represents a lot to me and it can tell others stories too. The artworks have been compiled into an exhibition called The Burning Generation. It's now on display at the Tumut Visitor Centre. Dr Rachel Fox believes it is amplifying the voices of young people like Alicia and Tilly. They are the future of rural communities and making sure that they are heard and that their needs are met is just vital to these rural communities and it isn't always happening. They're underestimated all the time. They have strong opinions, they have abilities, they're incredibly capable and um, I just enjoy promoting that. I think young people have increasingly a voice in areas related to climate change or disaster but they're more likely to be metropolitan young people. I think rural young people don't have enough of a voice and I think they're very disproportionately affected by things like bushfire. Alicia Olsen is proud of her work and hopes it will help others think about the state of the earth. Just seeing my like my artwork up there, seeing other young people's artworks up there, it was yeah, it was definitely liberating. It brought me a sense of peace in some in like some ways as well, which was just amazing. I'm just hoping that it will help other people to know that it's okay to be thinking about these things and wanting to make a change. Even the smallest things can make a difference. Something as small as like an artwork, even if it just touches one person and has one person thinking, wow, there is something I can do. It just makes an absolute world of difference. We're down at a local beach, uh, not so far from Warrnambool, and we've come here to release our Tuwaki, who to my knowledge is the only one in Victoria to be released so far in this last lot of Tuwaki penguins that have come in. A Tuwaki penguin from New Zealand that washed up in Victoria exhausted, dehydrated and starving has been released into the wild after weeks of TLC from wildlife carer Tracy Wilson. I am Tracy Wilson. I run Mosswood Wildlife Rescue and Rehabilitation in southwest Victoria. We are specialised built for Penguins, seabirds and koalas, but we do just about everything. These two penguins that you're looking after, they're a long way from home, aren't they? So New Zealand, they only breed in New Zealand. One of their breeding sites is Milford Sound. This is why we go to extreme lengths, building them caves that, you know, they can hide in, which is kind of fun sometimes. I kind of like the enrichment part of it because they actually breed in, in the forests, you know, with big rocky, mossy areas and waterfalls and all that sort of stuff. Hello, I'm Emily Bisland. These penguins that Tracy Wilson has been caring for are rare birds. Populations are estimated to be less than 7,000. So they're a range of crested penguins. They call them crested penguins because they have these fabulous eyebrows. Being able to do these guys is super special. They are my fun place. I don't know, there's something about penguins. There's just something wonderful about penguins. And these guys are 
they're inquisitive, they're interesting. They do things that you know is a signal, like right flipper out pretty much means bugger off. <laughs> out of my space, please. Thank you very much, but you can now leave. Their expressions, their, everything about them I find absolutely fascinating. Tracy ended up with two Tawaki penguins in her care. And when they arrived at Mosswood Wildlife Rescue, they were hungry, weak, barely moving. They had to be fed via a tube. What are you making up currently? I can see a, a cup full of water and chopped up fish and you're holding a kind of oral syringy apparatus. Uh, who, whose delicious meal is this? Okay, so we have a very weak, very, very thin Fjordland penguin, otherwise known as Tawaki. I much prefer the name Tawaki. And when they first come in, they're really dehydrated and we have to tube them fluids. But this penguin has finally graduated to pieces of fish. So chopped up bits of pilchards, yuck, um, bit of salt. And because obviously the ocean's very salty, so you've got to reproduce whatever they get in the wild. The Tawaki penguin is lying on its belly in a small room with its fins splayed either side of it. You can see his ability to stand is non-existent. Weak and unable to hold its own weight, it looks incredibly vulnerable. We put them in this setup to start with, so they're pretty much ICU and they get fluids three times a day and we gradually, gradually, gradually increase how much we feed them. Yeah, he's definitely pecking at you. So is that him saying I'm hungry or, yeah, or get so away from me? Hurry up and feed me. As Tracy starts to feed it... Mm, I thought you'd have a problem with that bit. Can I help? I see a real sign of life. The penguin snaps its beak in hunger, catching Tracy's hand. Ouch. It's a wonderful sign of the will to live. This is great because he wasn't doing this. This means he's really hungry and he's looking forward to food, whereas prior to this he was just not showing any signs of life whatsoever. And I really thought we were going to have to put him down. There are two Tawaki penguins under your care at the moment. One of them is faring a lot better, in better health than the other. And uh, what's the plan for that Tawaki? So the first Tawaki came in quite a long time ago. So he was, he's been in rehab for ages. So he's pretty close to going. His behaviour is starting to show that he's not, he just wants to go. So as soon as the weather's right, we'll try for a release. We pack them up in a, a portable crate, take them down to the beach, close to the water, open up the door and then you keep your fingers crossed that it says see you later thanks for the food and swims frantically back to where he needs to go finding lots of fish on the way I don't know how far away Milford Sound is from I think it's a couple of thousand yeah, kilometers it's a, it's a bit of a swim release days are bittersweet for rescuer Tracy Wilson because she never gets to find out if the penguins made it home. Um, I'm fairly unbearable on release day because I'm so stressed. Um, but also, if they go, it's, you know, like you've, you've got an animal that would have died if you hadn't intervened to an animal that was fit for release. So that's a good feeling. Mm. I lie awake at night thinking, oh, I hope he's yeah. getting food. I hope he's not starving. I hope he hasn't been eaten by a shark. You know, all those things you really think about. Okay, so we're on a coastal reserve near Kalani. So the penguin was like, you know, it was excited. It was ready to go. It was desperate to go. And, yeah, um, looked around, started to go towards the sand dunes instead of the waves, which does happen occasionally. So I had to go and stand 
closer and closer to the waves and it followed me and then close enough to the waves to get soaking feet full of water in my gumboots. And finally, after a great deal of consideration, he did what penguins do and they get out there behind the first little breaker, often get a wave go over their head and they look back at the shoreline and we reckon that's getting their navigational stuff mm-hmm. happening where they are um, and logging in a in a direction, hopefully a direction where there's lots of fish in the ocean. And have you seen him? He's gone now, he's gone. Well, I think so, but I always stress for a long time, check the beach. I stay here for ages with the binoculars and just, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, you've given that to Waki the best chance that it ever could have had. So it's a beautiful, peaceful scene at Kalani today and I have got a good feeling that the Tawaki is going to... If not, make it home, have a wonderful oceanic adventure that it never would have had if it hadn't (laughs) met you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Wildlife carer Tracy Wilson wishing a penguin well on its journey back to New Zealand from Kalani Beach in southwest Victoria, where she spoke to reporter Emily Bisland. You can see more on that story, including photos of the penguins that Tracy's been caring for and a video of her releasing one into the ocean. You'll find it on the ABC homepage, abc.net.au. Just look for A Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper with you for A Big Country. Still to come, the teenagers building confidence and learning new skills while trying out auctioneering. And have you ever heard of a native Australian animal called a mulgara? In Western Australia's northern goldfields, scientists are working on a project to return the rare marsupial to its island home. Julia Bertolio has the story. It's the hour before sunrise in Western Australia's northern goldfields, and Wiluna Martu rangers and scientists are walking through spinifex. They are on a mission to trap 100 brush-tailed mulgaras. I think we have a mulgar in there. Ooh. Yeah, a bit behind there. Oh, yeah. This one is a, is a BTM brush-tailed mulgara. This tiny carnivorous marsupial is a relative of the Tasmanian devil. It is said to suck the brains out of its prey, but it's itself close to being listed as a vulnerable species. With the permission and help of the traditional owners, the Martu, the Mulgaras are trapped and flown to the new island home, 800 kilometres away. This translocation is part of a large ecological restoration project called Return to 1616. Dr. Colleen Sims has worked on the project for years. The idea is that we're trying to return the island state back to as near as possible what we think was probably like before Europeans first set eyes on it. So when Dirk Hadog first landed on the island and the fauna and the mammals and birds that were there when he first arrived. So a lot of animals have disappeared since then because of the various practices of that we've done in the last 150 years so yeah so that's the return to 1616 which was the date he first landed on the island but yeah it's about the the real opportunity doing these translocations to not only kind of just hold back the tide of extinctions but actually do something positive to turn it back in in small places and small ways so that's the really exciting thing there's not too many opportunities where you can can do that Matua Karara Karara National Park, where the Mulgaras are being collected, is jointly managed by the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions and the Martu. Tiana Jones 
A scientist involved in the relocation says working with the Martu is good for the country. Joint management is where we bring traditional uh, and Aboriginal knowledge and Western or contemporary science together. So alone, they can only really bring a part of each. Um, but when you put them together, it, it encompasses this amazing version of land management that basically covers, you know, from cultural aspects to all of our natural uh, ecological aspects that we're wanting to work together to, to protect. And the Martu have helped her many times. I didn't know many of the tracks um, and scats around this part. I've come, I come from Perth and Broome, so different animals. So when I came out and did my first trip with these guys, it was to look at scats and tracks on the ground. So I had a book that I'd been reading, um, learning that way, but they just know them. So it was um, so useful to have them there, to be able to just look on the ground and I'd be like, my book doesn't look like this. And they're like, it's this. And then I'd be able to learn that. So that sort of traditional scientific knowledge is awesome. Faye Ann Jones, one of the rangers, has mastered the art of setting an heliotrope. With the cup and the bait for them. This inside. There we are. That's the trap. Just going to check it. Check it. Good. We learn too and then we learn them better things too. Anything like bush life and they learn us from like science. It's good to learn both way with them equally, yeah. Joint management is caring for country but also for people. As Wiluna Martu Ranges manager Dr Dorian Moro explains. The key outcome and benefit that the mob own is the pride of knowing that they can come out on country and be part of these large programs and also their ability to share that information with their, their community so that others want to come back out as well. To give the local Waluna mob ownership of connecting back to their country and that ownership comes in the form of jobs and uh, security to be able to share their, pass their knowledge on to their their youth, their next generation. Uh, it's a good thing that's why um, all the Aboriginal people like us got job to come out to. Yeah, and come out onto the land. Okay. It's a big difference. And the Rangers program is also stopping another type of extinction, ensuring knowledge can be preserved and passed on, which is Feyen's dream for the future. To teach our children so they can teach their children, take them, they take a trip out with us. They'll become rangers when they get big. That's a good thing. Who's in digging the world's first 2,200? Drop it down to 2,100. The sheep weren't for sale and the bid's not real. But the competition among the young auctioneers was fierce. At an agricultural show in the New South Wales Riverina, teenagers with the gift of the gab were competing in a young auctioneer's competition. Tom Reynolds was one of those stepping up to the microphone, taking out the advanced crown. Really good, actually, to get the win out of all the years I've been coming here. What do you think your winning secret was this year? Probably just being a little bit louder than everyone else. The microphone wasn't too flash. Yeah, it flies past. I got no idea what I set up there. Sold the best I could and that was it really. Digging the world's first 2,200. Drop it down to 2,100.
Hello, I'm Emily Doak. This competition at the Ganmain Show brought together students from six local Riverina high schools, showcasing the livestock sector, careers in the industry and teaching some valuable skills. Indigo Dawson was taking part in the competition, which she describes as extreme public speaking. Got to be 2,500 now. Got to be 2,500, ladies and gentlemen. You have to have all your maths right. You have to remember all your bids, where they're at. Um, you have to have your little fast fillers and just rocking up in front of a crowd. You don't know how many people is out there. It's just nerve-wracking. Got to be 2,304 out the back. And what do you see for your future career? I feel like I could go into auctioneering, um, especially because women in ag is a big deal. There's not many female auctioneers, but as I go to all my shows, and last year I um, did a competition in Sydney, and um, all women in ag come and talk to me afterwards and ask me about it and try and really get me into the industry. So my name's Isaac Bennett, I'm in year eight at the River and Anglican College and I'm from Taikata. Congratulations coming second today. What's your top tip for being a good auctioneer? What does it take? Uh, just keep practicing. I got told at the end of the day the person who practices the most wins the competition, whether it be practice in front of your family, practice or well, for me driving the tractor. And what do you have to do to your voice to make people um, listen to you? Uh, you want to be nice and loud. Uh, we, I got told to speak from your tummy. That, that way you sort of, everyone hears you, you're a lot more noticeable. 21. My name's Grace Shratley. I'm from Yurana and my school is St Paul's College. I'm interested in the Young Auctioneers competition because I believe there's a lot of different pathways in the industry and like in the agriculture industry and the opportunity was there at my school and I thought I might as well just give it a crack and just try my hardest and keep practising as much as possible. So you've taken part in this, um, what sort of skills do you reckon you've gained from being part of the Young Auctioneers? I reckon I've gained public speaking and eye contact and yeah, a lot more confidence in myself and talking and knowing that I can do it. The students are mentored by local stock and station agents. One of them, Joe Wilkes, says taking part will set them up for any job. They all showed a lot of passion out here this morning as to uh, what their knowledge of the livestock that they were selling. So I think they're, they're all um, yeah, got a foot in the door with the ag industry, yes. This is your trade. You do this um, week in, week out at the sale yards. And, and I suppose you learnt it as a young bloke when you entered the industry. But these are high school kids. Why is that significant? Kids at the age of 11, 12, 13, um, you know, building their confidence and... Uh, being able to public speak in, in, in front of crowds that are completely unfamiliar to them. I, I don't know what that could have done for me if I had that sort of an opportunity at that age. You know, I've certainly had mentors at the sale yards, but that was me picking my own mentors and then me going home and practising in the shower or on the road trips with mum, um, whereas these kids have got a big stage at such a young age. I just think their growth and their abilities when they enter the workforce immediately are going to be so much greater and, as we keep saying, hopefully in the ag industry, um, the ag industry, you know, can be tough at times, and you need a lot of a lot of confidence and self-belief. And I don't think there's a better uh, better thing to be sort of giving that to them at this age. We've seen a change in the way that uh, livestock are marketed in the time that you've been involved in the industry. We've we've moved from you know once upon a time, I suppose, where a lot of auctions happen in the sale yards or in the stud stock scene. You know, it was on property, and we're now um, online. I mean. Um, 
Do you think there's still a place for an auctioneer when we're seeing a growth in an online platform? I don't think there'll ever not be a place for, for an auctioneer or a, li a live selling uh, system and centres. Auctions online uh, do have their place also and when things are going good, when seasons are right and prices are right, um, everything has horses for courses and the online platforms work really well then. You know, when seasons bite and things get tough, I think this is that's when it really starts to shine. The uh, auctioneers, but, but uh, live selling centres... Um, when, when numbers lift and demand's not quite there, we, we still find an outlet and a way to uh, sell those stock at a, at a fairly reasonable price. 70. I did 170, you ought to be 70, 80. I did 180, 92. I did 200. And if you're inspired, Joe recommends a quick warm-up before stepping into the selling ring. Uh, singing simple little uh, auction uh, songs like one little, two little, three little fat pigs and it goes something like this. One little, two little, three little fat pigs, four little, five little, six little fat pigs. You have a go. One little, two little, three little fat pigs. <laughs> <laughs> Tongue-tied there. I'm not going to make an auctioneer, am I? No, it's all right. You're having a good go at it. I tell you what, I reckon I'll leave it over to these experts. Let's see them go. 25 got. 25 money. 25 big. Come on, ladies and gentlemen, can we get any more? Got to be 2,304 out the back. That hammer's off. He's had his time. I've got a 2,500 on once, twice, third and final call. Some of the young auctioneers who were taking part in a competition at a country show in the New South Wales Riverina ending that piece from reporter Emily Doak. For more on that story and all of the stories you heard on today's program, head to the ABC homepage, abc.net.au. You'll find all the links you need by searching for A Big Country. I'm Claire Jasper. I'll speak with you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.